If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Micah. Micah is one of those minor prophets. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Right after the book of Jonah. Chapter 5. And though our text is verses 4 and 5, I remind you of what we heard earlier in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. So far the reading of God's Word. You know the story, of course. Wise men from the east made their way to Herod's palace. The Magi, remember them? And we don't know if there were three or a dozen or how many Magi, magnificent ones, Magnus, great ones, inquiring, the Gospel of Matthew tells us, inquiring where the Messiah is to be born, for they are on a journey to find Him, the ruler who is about to be born. And Herod says, oh, really? Well, when you find him, please, please come tell me so that I might go and worship him too. And do you remember what Matthew tells us? Was Herod's intention to worship this baby? Not at all. But to eliminate the rival. Come tell me where. And he gathers the the, the scribes and the old wise men and the teachers, you can see them huddling together. Where is he to be? Where is he to be? Oh, the prophet, Micah, says in Bethlehem. And that's enough for Herod. Go on your way, find the child, and report back to me. Herod's glad to learn of the prophecy of Micah. But Herod is only interested... In the geography of the prophecy, verse 2. And he seems to ignore verses 4 and 5, which is our text for today. For this prophecy of Micah, this little prophecy in this minor prophet who stood with Isaiah, calling Israel to repentance, but yet offering hope of a ruler and of a king, this great prophecy is not about geography, but about a person. And Herod completely misses the message. Who is he? 
Verse 2 tells us, yes, the geography, he's out, of, he's out of Bethlehem, and his origins are from of old, of ancient times. And it's really this picture of eternity. And the Belgic Confession, one of our confessional statements, says this is a text that teaches us of the eternity of Christ. Hebrews 7, verse 3, I believe it is, it says he has no beginning and no end. The pre-incarnate Christ, he is eternal from ancient times. He's before time. And he visits the planet. He visits the earth. Israel has been abandoned from 586 till the time of Jesus. They have had no king, but a king is to come. And he will rule you with strength and majesty. And you will dwell securely. He will protect you. And he will make his name famous to the ends of the earth. And he, and Herod completely misses all this, he himself will be your peace. Point number one, Christmas, Merry Christmas, don't miss this. Jesus came to shepherd you according to Micah in the strength and the majesty of the Lord. And these two words are used together to make clear that though the Messiah is mighty, though the Messiah is strong, it's not brutal strength. It's majestic strength. It's beautiful strength. It's splendor and majesty. If you read through the Gospels and you study the life of Jesus, You get hints of this at certain moments in his life, right? Remember when the little boy brought him loaves and fishes, a couple loaves of bread and a few fishes, and there's 5,000 people who need to be fed. And this amazing miracle, transforming that little bit of food to feed the masses, and the crowd responds with wonder and awe and want to make him king. Or, or perhaps when they're on the boat in the storm, and it looks like the boat is about to capsize, and Jesus just says, peace, be still. Suddenly, the waves die down, and the sea is calm, and Peter freaks out. Who is this? And as Peter is an old man in his last letter in Second Peter, we hear Peter remembering, and he says, Second Peter 1.16, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And surely he recalls that moment on the mountain of transfiguration when Moses and Elijah stood alongside Jesus and suddenly Jesus is transfigured before them in all His glory there, that Shekinah glory again. And Moses and Elijah fade into the background and only Christ is there in power, in beauty. And yet, I bet there is somebody here saying, but wait, 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 wait. When Jesus walked this earth, He was humble. He was poor. He had No house, no bank account. He hung out with sinners. 
Nothing that special about him. Why is that? Why is it that we only get minor glimpses, momentary glimpses? And you know the answer, don't you? In Philippians chapter 2, we are told of this glorious God, the Son of God. It says in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, that though he was in the very nature God, he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and he humbled himself. Can you, can you get this? He voluntarily, this is a technical word, degraded himself. He came down. He lowered his grade. He voluntarily degraded himself to step into our flesh, into the misery and brokenness of this world. Why? Because he was on a mission. He was on a mission to come and die for sinners, to shepherd us through the judgment day by taking our sins upon Himself. Now, I ask you this I tell you all this to ask you this question. Was the strength gone in this degradation of Jesus? What do you think? Was there any majesty in the cross? Oh, yes. It was the ultimate show of strength to restrain Himself from His rightful ability to crush His enemies and to eliminate His oppressors. I, sometimes I pondered, this week I pondered the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26, where Jesus is standing on trial before the Sanhedrin. And I don't know if you know that story, but they are finally there to have it out with Jesus. And the, and the chief priest says in verse 64, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus replies, Yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And as Jesus announces this about Himself, did the Sanhedrin respond in worship? They shout blasphemy. They tear their robes. They say, He is worthy of death. And it says that they began to spit upon him and strike him with their fists. And they sent him to the cross. He seems so weak. Where's the crown? But you read every worthwhile, worthy commentator on the book of Romans, on the atonement of Christ. Leon Morris writes, John Murray writes, Edmund Clowney writes, that the way to the crown for Jesus is through the cross. And there's glory in the cross. There's glory in His mission. He came to die for you and for me. And that's His glory. Herod could not see this. The Sanhedrin could not see this. But when he was obedient to death, then it says, Philippians 2, verse 8, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place 
and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jude, at the end of that little book, the last book before the book of Revelation, Jude cries out to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, there's the word, power and authority through whom? Through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. And he rises from the dead and assumes his glory and his splendor once again. He will shepherd his flock in strength. He not only has the strength, But then what He does for us is He gives us that strength. And this is what I love about Micah's prophecy. Herod was clueless to this. But He will shepherd you with strength and He will give you strength. What do we love to say in the Psalms? We say, the Lord is my strength and my song. Right? How do you get that strength? Maybe somebody sitting here today that says... Sounds like a good deal to me, because I need more strength. Micah had a contemporary. His name was Isaiah. And in the 40th chapter of Isaiah, we read, Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. What does it mean to wait upon the Lord to renew your strength? It means that you and I are men and women and children who know how to pray, who know how to get alone in personal worship of the Lord and to be before Him and to say, Lord, I need you. I am weak, but you are strong. And you meet with the Lord in prayer and you come here Sunday after Sunday like Elias prayed this morning. Some of us may be depressed or discouraged or struggling. And you say, Lord, I'm waiting on you to renew my strength. And that second Sunday of the month, we have communion. And it is a moment, a central moment, where we receive what John Calvin called the kiss of God as we take the Lord's Supper together. And we receive His nourishment and His strength. Those who wait on the Lord, those are the people who lay hold of His promises. Have you memorized some promises of God? You go to the promises and you apply them, and you claim them, you hold to them, you grip them. And He renews your strength. Herod was clueless. I talked to a woman this week in our church, and the way she described one of the days of the week was she had a bad day at work. She came home, she took off her shoes, she put on some food for dinner, she sat down, dead tired, and the phone rings. A friend is calling about another friend. The other friend is in trouble. The other friend is just about to fall off a cliff and needs our help. Will you come? Will you you come and can we go alongside them? Her shoes are off. She's dead tired. It's dark outside, shortest day of the year. What would you do? She says, God, give me strength. 
she waits on the Lord. And the Lord enables her to put her shoes back on and to bundle up and to put the hat on her head to go to be with somebody who really doesn't want to see her and to confront and to love and to help this person. But I tell you, oh, brothers and sisters, this is the strength of the Lord at work in His people. Peter says, serve with the strength which God provides. You need strength. Our shepherd will give you strength. The next thing that Herod misses was that this shepherd king, it says, came to protect his people. Look at verse 4. And they, who? His flock, will live securely. And I love this. Herod's only interested in the geography, but Micah is telling us about the destiny of the church of Jesus Christ. They will dwell securely. This is why he came, to protect you. Now, I'm not a big student of psychology. And I know the the humanist psychologists, the best that they can do is sort of observe human nature. But there's one psychologist named Abraham Maslow. And he's had enormous influence in the secular humanist world. And Maslow was a student of people. And he says something that's so patently obvious, but I think it, it bears repeating. He says, there is deep in every human heart a desire for protection and security. Maslow says, I don't care who you are. You want to know that you will be safe and secure. Who will take care of me? And Micah tells us, the Lord will take care of you. Look at Ezekiel 34, 15 and 16. I myself will tend my sheep, have them lie down, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. What is he saying? I will take care of you. Do you believe this today, this promise of Jesus? I will take care of you. And if you stray, what does Jesus tell us? I will go after you. The 99 will stay behind. I'll go after the one. I will pursue you. And if you fall and are injured, I will bind you up. And do you remember when we studied the 23rd Psalm and we talked about how the shepherd takes care of the cast sheep? Does anybody remember what happens to a cast sheep? The cast sheep is the, is the, the lamb or the sheep who's fleece is soaked in the rain and they lie down or they fall down and they roll over on their back their little legs wiggle up in the air and they cannot turn themselves over and right themselves up a sheep cannot do that and they become easy prey for the wolves who will come and destroy them but the shepherd the good shepherd comes after them and he finds the cast sheep and, and he picks him up and he massages his legs so that the blood moves through the legs. He moves him forward those first few steps until he can run again. I will protect you, 
says the Lord. Do you believe that today? Do you believe His hand is over you? He will protect you. Not necessarily from the trials, because Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but He will protect you through the trials. And He is with you, hand in hand. Sheep can't protect themselves. They need a shepherd. Jesus will be that shepherd. And then thirdly, what Herod really missed, that, that the wise men understood, having come from afar, is that His greatness, it says, will be displayed to the end of the earth. And what we are told in Micah, in this little prophecy, is that a global movement has begun with the birth of this baby boy. A global movement that is not just limited to Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. Herod, concerned about his little dominion, his little fiefdom. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He shall reign forever and ever over the whole earth. And so, after His resurrection, do you remember the Great Commission? Do you know the words of the Great Commission? Good to remember. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, said Jesus. Therefore, go and disciple all nations. There it is. All nations. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. There it is again. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what we have, even in the prophet Micah, that King Herod just could not see, is the missional drumbeat of the church, that the church of Jesus Christ is on a mission every day of their lives to display the greatness of the Lord and to make His name famous. So I ask you, if you think your religion is all about your personal safety and your personal peace, you're mistaken. Those are great benefits that we have, but we are told that you have been drafted and drawn into the missional drumbeat of the church to declare His glory and to make His name famous. How do we do this? North Shore Community Church. You pray. You pray that God gives you someone to whom you can witness. And it is tomorrow night the one night of the year that every sociologist will tell you, one night of the year, any pagan in America is willing to come into a church. Candlelight service? Oh, that sounds interesting. Sure, I'll come. Who can you invite? Let our children encourage your friend tomorrow night. Let our teenagers declare the gospel. Let them hear the songs that we sing tomorrow night and speak to them of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And in 2013, brothers and sisters, we are going to take this very seriously. We do not want to march in place. We don't just want to mark time, but we want to move forward into, the, into every corner of Long Island and make His name famous. Fasten your seatbelts. We're on the move. And then, 
Point four. Verse five. Herod just didn't get there. All he was interested in was geography. But the promise is of this Messiah, he himself will be their peace. And if you have Jewish friends, you know the word. The English word peace essentially means the absence of war. That's a nice term. But this is the word shalom. Do you have Jewish friends? And a good Jewish friend, when they greet you, they will say, Shalom Aleichem. Shalom be upon you. And this word shalom is more than just the absence of war. It is tranquility. It is security. It is a relationship with the Almighty and cooperation in all your relationships together. Shalom. He will be your peace. Isaiah calls him the Prince of Peace. He brings peace from God. He brings peace with God. And then since he brought peace from God and peace with God, he brings peace through you to other people. It is quite amazing, quite remarkable. Peace from God. You've heard me confess, and I think some other people would line up behind me. I worry. Sometimes I'm a worrier. I fret about things. Sometimes I wake up in the night. What about this? What about that? And then even worse, what happens inside me is I, I can be tempted with what a psychologist would call catastrophic thinking. I wonder if we have any other catastrophic thinkers. What you do then is you, you take a, a scenario and you spin it out. Oh, what might happen? A worst case scenario. And then you fixate on that. <laughs> And the Bible tells us that if we belong to Jesus Christ, it tells us in Philippians chapter 4 that we should be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we should present our requests to God. Have you learned how to do that? It's what I'm learning to do. I've been learning to do it for 30-some years, 40 Almost 40 years I've been learning how to do this since I became a Christian when I was a teenager. I'm still learning. Are you still learning how you, how you bring your anxieties to God? And when you do, here's the promise, Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God in Paul's mind, shalom, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He brings peace from God. He brings peace with God. And all I'll say here is that this is the best peace. Romans 5, verse 1. Do you know this verse? It's great to get out your yellow highlighter. Let's get your pen and underline this verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we studied the great doctrine of justification. Justification, freedom from the guilt of sin. 
set right with God. Peace with God. Peace from God. And then the most amazing thing, what is vertical becomes horizontal. And we are taught how to have peace with each other. And in the book of Ephesians, it seems as though the Apostle Paul is quoting our verse, Micah 5, verse 5. I don't know if he had it in mind, but I think he must have. Ephesians 2, 14, he says, He himself will be their peace, as he writes about the, the healing between Jews and Gentiles. He talks about the tension between men and women. The tension between young and old, between husband and wife, wherever there is conflict, Jesus Christ brings His peace. Have you learned to be a peacemaker? Blessed are the peacemakers. We learned in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when you are a peacemaker. Why? Because you have peace from God. You have peace with God, and now you make peace wherever you go. Herod wants violence. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is your shalom. So, I ask you now, I ask you now what I asked you last week. Have you taken spiritual inventory? Christmas is the time to take spiritual inventory. Is He the shepherd who rules you, or do you think you are your own boss? Good question. Are you your own boss, or is Jesus your shepherd king. Make him your king today. Do you need strength? Jesus offers strength. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength before we leave here today. Let him renew your strength. Are you worried about your glory? Don't worry about your glory. Think about his glory, for his glory deserves to be seen and known all over the north shore of Long Island. Make his name famous. Let's join together and tell the world. And he offers peace. And if you want to get in line behind me, you come and cast your cares upon him. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Let's go to Him now. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Lord Jesus Christ, we hear the words of Isaiah echo and the words of Micah that You are the Prince of Peace. Shalom. And we pray that this great prophecy would be much more than just a geography lesson to us today. The location, yes, Lord, your word is vindicated as true, historically true, trustworthy, even in matters of history and geography, but even more precious to us are the great and precious promises of how your word proclaims to us our Savior, our Shepherd, our King, who is our Shalom. And we worship you now and we give our lives to you again and we say, take us, transform us, and use us to declare your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship him with this.